welcome to the Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our Northwestern Undergraduate Law Journal Speaker Series. My name is John Perales, Jr., and this year I am the co-director of programming and a member of the podcasting team. And I am joined today, today by another podcasting associate. Hi, I'm Caden Evans-Shaw, a freshman at Northwestern studying social policy. Today, we are joined by Professor Hughes. Professor Hughes has a rich background within the legal field, and we would love to hear more about it. Professor Hughes, please tell us a little bit more about yourself, and thank you again for joining us today. Well, I think one of the reasons that people are interested in my joining you is that I was the first Black woman to receive tenure at Northwestern in any department. I received tenure in 1979 at Northwestern Law School. I was the first Black woman to graduate from the University of Minnesota Law School, and subsequently became the first Black woman to be a tenure-track law professor at a majority school in 1971. But it's important to note that a Black law school had a Black woman law professor before I started. She was there in 1951. I started in 1971. I started teaching at the Minnesota Law School and then came to Northwestern ostensibly to rest up before suing the University of Minnesota. I got an offer to remain and I stayed until I retired, excuse me, in August 2021. Awesome, that's really cool. During our research, we saw that you're interested in the following areas of law, evidence, civil procedure, constitutional law, and refugees and asylum. How did you become interested in these specific areas of the law? Well, refugees and asylum came about because uh, at, the, excuse me, at the time, uh, the United States put a blockade around Haiti to prevent refugees from coming to the United States. And I thought to myself, how could the land of the free and home of the brave prevent people from coming to the United States? Uh, but the United States was in international waters off the coast of Haiti. And of course, Haiti is a black nation and it prevented those refugees from coming here. And that's how I got started in refugee asylum. Evidence I've taught ever since I began teaching in 1971. Excuse me. My interest in constitutional law was really the 14th Amendment because the 14th Amendment is the place where people usually come when they say, I know my rights. 14th Amendment has equal protection and due process. And those are the important areas where people claim, particularly marginalized groups claim, they wanted equality. 14th Amendment is where uh, Brown versus Board of Education was initially decided. Uh, and the 14th Amendment was also utilized in dealing with, <clears throat> excuse me, gender equality. That's incredible. I think those are like awesome stories. And I think uh, those are very important pieces of history that have gotten you into these areas of the law. Um, you've talked about becoming the first uh, tenured black professor at uh, a majority law school. Um, and 
you've accomplished so much in your professional career so far. Uh, therefore, we want to know, out of all your professional experience, uh, what has been your favorite professional step? Would you say it's been uh, becoming the first a Black law professor at a majority school, or would it be something else? Uh, no, I think being a first simply means that you were born at the right time where opportunities were available. Obviously, there were Black women who, <clears throat> who are capable of being law professors before 1971 when a white law school came after me. Actually, the, the interesting thing about it is that they came after a black male. They really did not want a black woman. But, and I may as well just say it plain, the arrogance of a school to think that Derrick Bell would leave Harvard and come to Minnesota, it just confounded me. At any rate, once Derrick Bell would not leave Harvard to come to Minnesota, someone said, well, we have a graduate of our own law school who has the credentials to be a law professor, and they came looking for me. Um, I have a hard time answering your question, which do I say was my favorite? Actually, they all were very difficult. Being, being a first is no cakewalk, so uh, I can't say that anything was a favorite of mine. Um, I, I think the favorite is the fact that I came to law school initially because I was a graduate of Coughlin College. At the time, that college had recruiters coming to the college to look for students to come to law school. Now, that doesn't happen now, but then it did. And um, the director of placement said to me, well, you indicated an interest in the law. I said, oh, that was just a passing interest. I didn't be a librarian. And I received a note by campus box saying, you are signed up for an interview with the recruiter from Columbia be there. Well, actually, I suppose I would say that's my favorite, my favorite in the sense that I became a lawyer because I was incensed that this man thought I did not have the intellectual capacity to be a law professor. I was about to graduate Bangla Cum Laude from a prestigious liberal arts college. And he also thought that because I was female, I would just get married and have children and the education would be wasted on me. So favorite suggest there's something you actually like. I didn't like it. So I'm not sure it's a favorite in that sense, but the one that sticks out in my head is how I ended up being a lawyer in the first place. That's all really, really cool um, and a great story. We, you talked a little bit about the 14th Amendment and we see that you teach or have taught classes on a ton of other things. Which one has been, which class has been your favorite to teach and why? Oh, well, I think the 14th Amendment was my favorite because actually the 14th Amendment, <clears throat> excuse me, was the one that I personally felt most akin to. Um, primarily because the 14th Amendment is where people use when they argue for equality of treatment. Uh, excuse me. The 14th Amendment has not always been interpreted so expansively, but uh, I think it was my favorite because it's so broad and so many groups 
use the 14th Amendment trying to get equal access. And there the, are the many, many uh, decisions that come under the 14th Amendment. So it, it was intellectually challenging as well. Right. And we know you served as a member on the Illinois Supreme Court's uh, Committee on Rules of Evidence. Can you tell us more about that? Did I sat on the, on the Supreme Court Committee on Rules of Evidence? Uh, yes. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that, that was many years ago. Uh, at the time when uh, Illinois was trying to consider whether or not to have a court of evidence. There is a federal rules of evidence, and many states have rules of evidence. But at the time, Illinois did not. That was fascinating, and I owed my position on that committee to the then dean of the Northwestern Law School who suggested that uh, I be there. I found it fascinating because uh, there were just two law professors, one of whom was the recorder, and most of them were practicing lawyers. And so it was interesting to me uh, as a professor to hear how practicing lawyers viewed rules of evidence. I'm not so sure that my presence on the committee added a lot because it really was a committee that was focused on uh, what the practicing lawyers would uh, like about rules of evidence. Very interesting. Um, we also see that you have experience with constitutional law. I know you talked a lot about the 14th Amendment, um, especially during recent times, some policymakers and politicians have contended over the validity of the U.S. Constitution and whether it leads to a rigged democracy. Do you believe that your... leads to a what kind of democracy? Um, a rigged, leads to a what? rigged democracy. Rigged? Yes. Okay. Do you believe with your experience that the Constitution is capable of ruling through an intersectional lens to overcome racial injustices in America? Oh, of course it's, it's possible. You know, the, the Constitution is very broad, and it really depends upon how the justices view it. And indeed, uh, take something that, uh, two or two things that are up for grabs before the Supreme Court now. One is the abortion decision. That was the 1972 Roe versus Wade decision. And the other is a challenge to uh, affirmative action. Well, affirmative action has been before the court uh, many times, and and now people consider it may, in fact, be struck down, but it really just depends upon the viewpoint of the justices. Due process is open-ended. Equal protection is open-ended. The Constitution doesn't list what it actually means by due process. It list what it means by due process. So it really depends upon the viewpoint of the justices. And the justices... Uh, are all lawyers, most of whom from uh, prestigious Eastern law schools, but they, they view, but they, they differ in their view about how the Constitution be interpreted. So uh, the real issue is who's on the Supreme Court and how they view uh, their role in interpreting the Constitution. Um, I don't want to predict what they're going to do. Uh, on Roe versus Wade, which is the abortion decision. And I want to predict what they're going to do on the affirmative action case, which is against Harvard. Uh, but the Supreme Court now 
is six to three in favor of the conservatives. So uh, one just has to hold one's breath. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what the Supreme Court does in the next uh, couple months and over the course of the, the year. Um, we do have one final question for you, uh, which we are asking all of our podcast guests this year. Um, a majority of our listeners are undergraduate students with the intention of going to law school in the near future. Uh, and of course, our loyal, our loyal parents. Uh, but what is one piece of advice that you have for us as undergraduate students uh, looking to go to law school and looking to practice law? Okay, piece, piece of advice for when you go to law school I, I to, or what you're doing now? Um, uh, for when we go to law school. Well, when you go to law school, okay. The first thing that I would say is that consider that you need to buckle down and attend to the first year of law school. It's so critical. It, it, it's unfortunate that way, but you really don't have time and energy to do anything else but focus on your studies for the first year, and also do not be dismayed, uh, particularly for those from marginalized groups, do not be dismayed that the law does not accord with your sense of reality about the world. The point is, you can do what you want to do with the degree, and it's important to keep always keep what W.B. Du Bois calls a double consciousness, to be both he was speaking of blacks, to be both black and an American, and also understand that you can keep the black point of view and also be a lawyer. You don't have to change yourself to be a lawyer. You just add on to, to who you are. But the first year of law school is the most important, and don't be depressed by it because it's not like anything you've ever done before. People come to law school and say, oh, goodness, what is this about? I don't think I like it. Uh, I, I did very well in graduate school. And what is this? But persevere, get to the first year law school, do as well as you can in the first year, and then wait for the second and third year. That's really great advice um, and super inspiring, especially from such a cool person. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Hughes, and taking the time for speaking with us. We, best, we wish you the best of luck um, in the rest of your life. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Yes, you too. Have a great day. Okay, bye now. Bye.